Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Marysville Nazarene. And whether you've decided to join us today live or through our live stream, it is good to be together, right? It is good to be doing the same thing at the same time, even when we're not all in the same place. Um, one of the difficult things about this season is because we've spent so much time apart, it's easy to lose track of special moments that have happened in the life of our church. And I know so many of us have been praying for years for, um, for Thad and Sarah as they have been um, waiting anxiously to welcome, to welcome Max. And he was born about seven or eight weeks ago now. And usually baby showers are like my favorite thing where we all come together and just celebrate and in this season, we didn't really, we didn't get to do that for them. And so I would just encourage you to shower them virtually with, um, through gift cards and cards this week. So as you're out um, this week, if you think about them, pick up a gift card, toss it in the mail to them. If you need their address, I can give that to you, or it will also be in our weekly update, which you'll get through um, email tomorrow. If you want to go ahead and just bow your heads with me, and let's pray as we open our service. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are, we are so thankful for, for the gift of, of gathering, of being together. Lord, I ask that you would just calm us, quiet our hearts, limit our distractions, Lord, as we focus on you. Lord, we set this time before you as an offering. We remind ourselves that this is the most important thing, and Lord, that everything else can wait. Lord, please um, be with our speakers this morning or with our worship team. Lord, as we lay this, this offering before you, we love you. We're so thankful for everything you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It is great to be with you. Would you stand with us this morning? I would love to tell you to turn and shake hands with somebody, but maybe just turn and wave with somebody as you stand. Greet them with a wave. We're going to worship together. We just invite you to worship the Lord with us. church on fire when your people pass change the atmosphere build your kingdom here we pray 
Unleash your kingdom's power, each in the near and far. No force of hell can stop. Kingdom seed in us, fill us with the strength and love of Christ. We are your church, are the Since she's not here this morning, I'm going to fill in for her. I got to tell you, with those masks on, I don't even know that I hear you. <laughs> Sing out this morning. I know it's hard, and maybe some of you say I shouldn't be singing out because I, my voice isn't great. That does not matter in this place. You worship the Lord and you sing to Him this morning, okay? Let's continue to worship. His blood breaks the chains, 
And every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Every knee will bow before him. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Who can stop my Lord? Our God is a lion, the lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. And every knee will bow before him. Our God is a lamb, the lamb that was slain for the sins of this world. His blood breaks the chains, and every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Every knee will bow before him. you believe that this morning? Amen. How many of you have noticed that as we've been a little more homebound, we've been relying more and more on technology to talk to people? Anybody? Uh, my sister lives in West Virginia. It's where I'm from, and uh, I don't get to see her very often, once or twice a year, and we were messaging this, each other this week. It would seem like the context of this conversation would be better suited on the phone or in person, but that wasn't available. She texted me a real weird question. Um, how many of you ever gotten a weird question by somebody on text and you're not sure how to answer it? Yeah. <laughs> she texted me a question just out of the blue. She said, and she calls me Bub. That's what she's called me. I'm, my name's Brian, but she calls me Bub. She says, hey, Bub. She said, how do I know I'm in a relationship with God when I don't feel him? I was putting drywall up in our kitchen ceiling. I mean, you know, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, how do I respond to that? Um, and that prompted a 45-minute text conversation back and forth between the two of us. She was in a place in her relationship with God where she was saying, you know, I don't always feel that I'm in a relationship with him. It's not, and I asked her what that meant, you know, you don't feel like you're doing the right thing. She said, no, I just don't always emotionally feel that I'm in a relationship with God. And at the risk of sounding like I know everything and she knows nothing, which is not the case at all, uh, we, in discussing, came to the understanding, the conclusion together that a relationship with God has nothing to do with your emotional state. A relationship with God has to do with the truth of His love for us and the acceptance of the fact that we desperately need Him. And so it has nothing to do with how good you feel in the moment or even how emotionally bad you feel. It's about faith and trust and believing in Him. And I tried to speak to her, again, via text, and say things that would help her understand that. And I found myself using terms that we use here in the church, lean into him, listen to him, trust in him. I don't know where you are this morning, but I know that especially over the last few months, my emotional state has been less up and more down with all that's going on. But I'm grateful this morning that my relationship with God, my trust in him, my reliance upon him has nothing to do with emotion. But it has to do with the truth of his love for me and the fact that I desperately need him. This song we're going to sing, one of my favorite lines is, it says, Spirit, take me where my trust is without borders, not where I feel good. Take me to where my trust no longer has any limitations. 
trust in him this morning. I pray that you hear these words of the song. And if this is your prayer this morning, sing it out. You call me out upon the waters, the great unknown, where feet may fail. And there I find you in the mystery, in oceans deep, my faith will stay. Stronger in the presence of my 
names before we came to be. You saw the very day we'd fall away from you, and how desperately we need to be redeemed. Lord Jesus, come lead us. We're desperate for your touch. Oh, great and mighty one, with one desire we come, that you would reign, that you would reign in us. We're offering up our lives, a living sacrifice, that you would reign, that you would reign in us. Spirit of the living God, for fresh again, come search our hearts and purify our lives. We need your perfect love, we need your discipline. We're lost unless you guide us with your light. Lord Jesus, come lead us. We're desperate for your touch. Oh, great and mighty one, with one desire we come that you would reign, that you would reign in us. We're offering up our lives, a living sacrifice, that you would reign, that you would reign in us. We cry out for your That you would reign, that you would reign in us. We're offering up our lives, a living sacrifice. That you would reign, that you would reign in us. Father, that is our prayer this morning. Reign in us. Be in charge in us. Be the center of who we are this morning. Father, our songs of worship are our way of saying we want all of you today. In every aspect of who we are, in every aspect of every relationship we have, in every single facet of our life, Lord, reign in those areas. Be you in us this morning. 
Fathers, we come into this place this morning and into the presence of our friends and our loved ones. Father, we know we are with you and your spirit is here today. So God, do for us and in us what you desire to happen this morning. Speak to us through the worship as you already have. Speak to us through the message, Lord. Speak to your through your messengers this morning. And Lord, we know that here, gathered this morning, in your presence, we are better for being able to be here and to hear you in all the ways that you wish to speak to us. God, guide us now as we continue to listen. It's in your name we thank you and praise you for all things. Amen. Maybe see. Well, good morning. It is. Uh, it's great to see you this morning. Um, for this morning's next gen moment, uh, it's going to be a little bit different. We're actually taking a little bit of a break from the epic series because uh, Dr. Nelson Purdue is going to be bringing us the word here in just a few minutes. And so, uh, as we were taking the break, and I'm trying to think of what do we want to communicate to uh, to our young people, but also to our families who are. Uh, rubbing shoulders with young people, whether it be parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles. Um, what's been on my heart and mind um, for several weeks, really, especially as we've been going through this epic series, is this idea of story. We call this series epic because it's an epic story, right? Um, we've been following the story of God's people throughout their history. We've been following along in their story and we've been determining what does this story have to say to us. That's the beauty of the story of God, right? The beauty of the story of God is that it's not just a story that we read and say, okay, that's cool, that happened, and then we're done. The reason that we do this, like the reason that we exist as followers of Christ, the reason that we gather together and we, we dig into Scripture is because it's a story that is alive and constantly unfolding. And so there's two things that we get to do as we look at the story of the people of God at work in and through the lives of, of His people. One, we get to determine what does this story say to us? Where do we find ourselves in this story? So when we're telling the story of the Israelites, of God's people, the epic story, when we're telling that story, we get to say, where do I find myself in that story? Where do I fit in that story? And then because of where I fit in that story, what is God telling me within that story? But the really cool thing about the story of God at work in the lives of the people of God is that it's a story that is constantly continuing. And so the story doesn't end when Scripture ends. The story continues and we get to be a part of that epic journey. And so as I thought about how, what do we do with this break in between our epic series, I thought, man, I would love to encourage you as a family, whether it's mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, kids, teens, whatever it is, I encourage you this week, think about your story and think about where it falls in place with God's story. Take time to think about the stories of God through Scripture, but then also take time to think about what is your story? What's your family's story? We're, we're all a part of this story. There were teenagers who got to be a part of God's story in a different setting this past week, and, and McCoy got to be baptized in the ocean, and that's part of her story now that is part of God's story. But we're all a part of the story too. Believe it or not, we're a part of the story in this crazy time that we're living in right now. Like We're all wearing a mask in church 
and we can have different opinions and, and different feelings on that, but regardless, we are still a part of God's story right here and right now, even in this crazy season that we're in. So my encouragement to you as individuals and even as families is this week, reflect on what is your story? What has God done in the life of your family? Maybe even write that story down. Maybe even do campfire style and sit around a campfire and tell stories about God at work in your family. We serve a God who invites us to join in His story. The story hasn't ended. We get to be a part of that story. So what's your story? Don't keep your story to yourself. Dr. Purdue, come and share the word with us. You may wonder why I've been hanging around here a little more recently than I normally do last fall after about 46 years in evangelism. And, <clears throat> and uh, I developed a little bit of a throat trouble. That's why I have this water here. And, and uh, my reflexes aren't quite as they used to be. And my wife and I decided maybe we ought to curtail some of this travel and come home and sort of cut back. And so I, uh, I have done that, and I uh, was sitting in my study. For, I still go to my study. I still do my writings. I still prepare my sermons, though many of them now I will never preach again. <clears throat> but when the pastor called me and asked if I'd be interested in coming and speaking this morning, I was delighted to say I would. And as I was in my study, I began to seek God's directive for the service. I realize we talk about sermons. I have a sense that this is more of a message to you from God to, through me than it is a sermon. And so consequently, I'd like, if I might, to speak to you on a very, what I think now is a very familiar passage. When he called, it was almost like God put a spotlight on the portion of two verses in Hebrews chapter 12 that you find before you. And I'm going to read them and I want to share from my heart, what God has shared with me for you. Now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. I've read that many, many times in my study, but I've never taken time to preach on it. But it seems to have gripped me, and I want to share with you because of the context of what we are facing in this present day. But in order to do that, I want you to note three things real quickly of those two verses, or at least partial verses. The words once more tell us, obviously, that Jesus, or God, had shaken this world previously uh, to this moment. And if you read 18th verse through 21 in that chapter, you discover what that shaking, where it occurred. It was on Mount Sinai, whenever God gave the law to Moses and said the mountain quaked and the fire and the darkness and the smoke, and it trembled. And then God spoke and his voice was like the trumpet. It was so amazing, so terrible a sight. Moses said that I exceedingly fear and quake. That was a previous time when God shook the earth. But the second thing you'll notice, he's speaking now of not only shaking the earth, but the heavens. At least six times in the Bible you see or you read where God shook the heavens or will shake the heavens. 
You find it in Isaiah chapter 13. You find it over in Joel's prophecy in chapter 3. And Haggai, twice he mentions it in chapter 2, here in chapter 12, where I read in your hearing. And then in Matthew 24, we read the words, The powers of heaven shall be shaken, and there shall appear the sign of the Son of Man. But the third thing where I want to notice with you this morning particularly is that he will shake this earth again. For when we read the words, I shall not shake the earth only, I shall shake the heavens, means obviously he's going to shake the earth. I'm not so sure, but what this we're witnessing might be a precursor of things to come. And when I say I'm going to deal with it in the context of this day, a month ago we celebrated our nation's uh, birthday. 244 years ago, 56 men signed the Declaration of Independence. And when they signed the Declaration of Independence, they established our nation under the Judeo-Christian principles. In fact, they even gave the branches of our government, founded on Isaiah chapter 33, verse 22, where it speaks of God being the lawmaker, the judge, and the king. You have your legislative, you have your judicial, and you have your executive branches. All of those men who signed that document paid a tremendous price. If you ever studied that, it would do you well to go back and see what they paid. Many of them, if not most of them, were very wealthy men. They died paupers. Many of them were tortured. Many suffered death in some of their family. I'm reminded of one man particularly. His name was John Hart. Having signed that document, he was, had to flee the bedside of his dying wife. He had 13 children. When he returned, finally, of course, his wife had already passed away. Never again was he united with any of his children the rest of his life. We talk about paying a price. They paid a high price. They didn't do it for security. They did it for one reason, that they might have the freedom to do what we're doing right now, worshiping our God as we please. They made the pledge for the support of this declaration with firm reliance on the providence of the divine. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortune, our sacred honor. Now, in spite of the faults that we in this nation have for 244 years, it's been a bastion for freedom. Everyone in the world knows this is a free country. And hundreds of thousands of men and women have paid the full price to enable you and me to enjoy this that we're enjoying this morning. I have some in my own family that did, but I'm fearful that things are beginning to change. I was reading John Adams in preparation for this, the former president of another era, and we talk a lot about the Constitution today, and he made the statement that our Constitution was made only for religious and moral people. It's wholly inadequate for the governing of any other. The tragedy is many of our major universities that used to be religious centers have now become seedbeds of atheism and they've raped the minds of our young people until the faith of our fathers now is being reduced to the foolishness of their sons. 
There are those who are predicting that this is the beginning of the death of our nation. I'm just sharing with you what I've been studying, what I've been reading. In fact, uh, there was one British historian by the name of Arnold Toynbee who was a student of the civilizations. He said of the 19 out of 22 civilizations that have already gone, he said they all came to their demise when they reached the moral environment that we now find ourselves in this Western society. The historian Arnold Toynbee said, unless we experience a spiritual awakening, there is no hope for the Western society. That wasn't a preacher talking, that was an historian. He died in 1975. We're facing unspeakable chaos. Lawlessness is prevailing. We're seeing mayhem, death, and destruction in our streets, and the incivility of our politicians have literally paralyzed our government. Any student of history knows this is not a new phenomenon for nations that are in the throes of decay. Now, I haven't painted a very beautiful picture for you, but I think we ought to be realists if we're going to understand what God's saying to us, and his word is very relevant to you and me this morning. In fact, if you'll just engage me for a moment, I, I, uh, I've always uh, enjoyed studying for some reason that World War II era, whenever Adolf did his, Adolf Hitler did his dastardly deeds, uh, all of what's happening, beginning to happen, started over there the same way. In fact, um, Adolf Hitler obviously denied God. He destroyed those shrines, any religious shrine or statue. He burned the literature. He spread his propaganda. It was all prevalent in that day. And then he, as you know, tried to uh, exterminate the Jews, six million of them. He even euthanized young people who did not fit his super uh, his, his, what he called his uh, super race that he was trying to develop. There was one man, great theologian, Dr. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who could not adhere to that. He was living in our country at the time, but he said, I must go back to my homeland. I cannot abide what Adolf Hitler is doing. As a result, he and his brother and two of their brother-in-laws were tried for the attempt assassination of Adolf Hitler. And they all were hanged. He, 39 years of age, April 1945, was taken out and hanged. Just a few weeks, by the way, before Adolf Hitler committed suicide. But there was another Lutheran pastor by the name of Niemöller. Niemöller was not nearly so vocal. In fact, Niemöller in his own testimony said uh, when they came for the communists, I wasn't a communist, so he said, I didn't speak up. He said when they came for the socialists, I wasn't a socialist, so I didn't speak up. He said they came for the trade unions, I wasn't uh, belonged to the union, I didn't speak up. He said when they came for the Catholics, I was a Protestant, I didn't speak up. When they came for the Jews, I didn't say anything. And then he said when they came for me, there was no one left to speak sent to Dachau, concentration camp, six years. He survived it. There's a lot of talk today about a silent majority. Maybe that's our problem. 
I was, I was reminded how much the Bible speaks of our confession of Christ. They long ago saw the promises and they embraced them and they confessed them. I'm not so sure we are as open about doing things like that. I remind of a statement you've heard many times in recent days, John Stuart Mill, the only thing essential or necessary for evil men to triumph is for good men and women to do nothing. Now you say, we're not here for a history lesson. I want you to know that this Bible has a whole lot to say about history. And these words are speaking to us about that very fact. We are now seeing a pandemic, a global pandemic, sweeping the world. When did you ever see anything sweep the entire world like we're witnessing today? You know, the book of the Revelation is called the Apocalypse. The word apocalypse simply means the unveiling, the uncovering. You know, I'm firmly believing now that the whole Bible is an apocalypse. I believe this whole Bible is an unveiling for you and me, and it's relevant for you and me in this very moment in which we live. You and I are witnessing, and we know there is a master hand directing this mass movement of evil and this unrelenting force against righteousness and truth. That hand has a personality. That personality has a name. His name is Satan. There are only four, uh, three places in the Bible where Satan's voice is recorded. In Genesis, when he tempted Eve in the garden, the voice is recorded. In Job, whenever he tried to dialogue with God about Job, his voice was recorded. The last place is found following the baptism of Jesus Christ at the river Jordan at the hand of John the Baptist. And then following, it said the Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And there's the last time he spoke. He's a subtle being. Paul tells us not to be ignorant of his schemes. And he utilizes carnally minded men and women to do his work. That's why it's important that we not only be forgiven of our sins, we be cleansed from this that is hostile to God and is subordinate to the law of God. And that's why we're witnessing all of this lawlessness in the world. I believe we may be seeing Jesus shake the world for the last time. He's shaking it socially. He's shaking it economically. He's shaking it politically morally, even religiously. You say, what's the purpose that he would shake the world? There's one major reason why he is shaking it is so that the essential and the eternal will stand out very clearly. While nations rise and fall, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, the foundation of God Standeth sure. Aren't you glad? Place for an amen. You're getting too quiet. The foundation of God standeth sure. And then he makes two statements. Where it tells us the Lord knows those who are his. And he said, for everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Let me hang two words in your mind. And I do this so I can keep these thoughts in my mind separated. There has to be a recognition that God has who are his own. 
Can I tell you this morning, God does not get His children mixed up with the devil's brats. He knows those who are His own. I want to Him to know me. You want to know Him. But everyone, the word renunciation I would give you, everyone who names the name of Christ, depart from evil. That's the two facts that establishes the foundation of Christ. You know, it's a real tragedy how we have divided ourselves in our world today. We have racial division. We have, uh, what can I say, ethnic divisions, economic divisions, political divisions. Do you know that God only has one division? We are either believers or we are unbelievers. That's the only division that he has in his teaching. This word in my text implies that some things will not shake. That's the good news. Some things will remain. While he'll shake the earth, there are some things that are unshakable. And I'd like to just mention a few of those to encourage you before you leave this morning. Not that you don't know them, but I said to you, God laid it on my heart to share it, and I will be faithful to his command in my ministry. The first thing is Christ. Aren't you glad that he is the unshakable person? Aren't you glad that he is the first and the last? The first calls the fixed center, the final conclusion of everything. He spoke the first word, he'll speak the last word. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the immortal, the immutable, the invincible Son of God. There's never been one like him. There'll never be another like him. He is an unshakable Christ. Christ may exhaust this world, but this world will never exhaust our Christ. And I'm thankful to know that I can stand on him tonight as my rock. I may shake on the rock, but the rock doesn't shake, does it? In fact, his kingdom is everlasting. His government is changeless. His reign is eternal. That is an unshakable truth that will stand and remain when everything else passes away. But his word is just as changeless as he himself. In fact, Psalms 119 speaks of the unshakable proclamation of his word. Forever the word is sealed in heaven. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Man's word changes from day to day. But the hammers of cynicism and skepticism will eventually wear out on the anvil of God's word. When everybody else has spoken and when all the preachers have silenced and every other politicians given their opinions all is silent God will speak and I'm glad he will speak and I want to be a part of that day but there's not only an unchanging word there's unchanging peace you know I talk to people as you do you see these trying days that we're facing and all this all the violence and lawlessness and all the incivility. It's just overwhelming because you and I haven't faced it before. We're seeing the aftermath, or at least in place, of a restless world. Why do you suppose Jesus kept saying, Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for you shall find rest for your soul. For I am meek and lowly in heart. 
Isaiah said it one time when he said it's like they're reeling to and fro like a drunkard and said they shall fall and never rise again. What a sad picture for a world like that. When Jesus was resurrected, you remember, he went to those disciples that were waiting for him in the upper room and he went through the door without opening the door and before he ascended back to the Father. They had uh, been very fearful up until that time. They didn't know what was going to take place. They didn't understand the crucifixion or the resurrection until he had showed himself as the empty tomb and the living Christ. And he looked at them and he understood them. And by the way, when you read this, I think any time I read God's word, I try to put myself in those areas like he's speaking to me, for he is speaking to me and you. I can see as he places his hand on his breast and sort of releases it. And he says, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto thee. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I'm glad for the peace that passes understanding today, aren't you? But there's the word faith. Faith is something we talk a lot about. Uh, faith, of course, is only valid as it's grounded in those things that are not shakable. Grounded in the unshakable. It's the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Hope is a purifying, blessed, and a lively thing. You remember First John said, It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know when he appears we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then he says, Every man that has this hope in him purifies himself. It's a purifying hope. It's a blessed hope. Paul tells that young pastor, Titus, he said, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we shall live soberly, righteously, godly in this world. For we're looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. It's a blessed hope. It's a lively hope because Peter tells us in his word, he has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I don't know what you do about that hope, but I can tell you one thing. It's the anchor of the soul. It will keep you steadfast. It will keep you solidified. It will sustain you when everything around you is falling apart. I've tried it. I know it. You know it. We want to shout to the housetops. We have a hope. We used to sing the old hymn, we have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. Now let me give you just in closing what I think as I prayed about this and worked, what I think literally God talked to me about that I think he would like you to know. As we watch our world rocking and reeling seemingly on the rim of ruin, what am I to do, preacher? 
What's my place in this whole thing? I want you to know, first of all, very candidly, we must keep our eyes on things that are unshakable, the things that remain. And if we do that, I think it was um, trying to think, I, I'm trying to do my, uh, I was converted in uh, 1958, and so uh, 40, 62 years ago. And I can tell you, I have never gotten away from the reality that this world is rapidly passing. This life is very fragile. That eternity looms before me. And you and I have a rendezvous with destiny. And I've never gotten it out of my mind from the first time as a young teenager that I met Jesus. But I say that to you because his advice in his word is that you and I must keep an eternal perspective about this thing called life. We, in his word, emphatically reminds us not to live oblivious of eternity. I say that because we're moving there rapidly. Maybe it's because I feel it more than I've ever felt it. Don't have too many more years to go. But I know one thing, I want to be ready from here to meet there. One of these days, this old tabernacle is going to be dissolved. But the good news is, if we ground ourselves in the unshakable, we have a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Whatever else you have to give up will be cheap. Whatever else, in order to gain eternity. Tennyson, whom I come to love reading his poetry and his poem, he makes profound statements. He said, don't allow the little hills of time shut out from you the mountains of eternity. Don't become so obsessed with the temporal, the passing, the dying, the decaying, that you miss the eternal. Held a camp meeting many years ago with the late Dr. Dr. V.H. Lewis, one time general superintendent of our church. I'll never forget what he said to me, and I was much younger then than I am now. And he was coming down to the close of his life. He said, Nelson, don't spend a whole lot of time dying. He said, it won't take long when it comes. Never had a statement like that ever made to me. That means if you prepare for it, when it comes, there's something far better that awaits you and me. You see, uh, over and again, the word speaks of how fragile and how brief this world is. Isaiah said it in his word. He said, we all do fade as a leaf. The psalmist said, life is swifter than a weaver shuttle. That doesn't sort of mesh with us because we don't do a whole lot of weaving, but it's, if you've ever seen them work, they're faster than the eye can catch. James said it's just a vapor, appears on the scene, vanishes away. I don't know if you like to read biographies. I love to read them. Some are good, some not so good. Some are tragic. 
there was a fellow by the name of Prince Baldwin of Belgium. He was a playboy. Spent his whole life living his own life, doing his own thing. Engaging in every vile, wicked uh, activity that he could find. And he had his little friends around him and they had a great time. It's almost what you're seeing on television. But all of a sudden he was stricken down physically. And it was just a few hours before he was going to leave this world into the next. And he called his friends together in a frantic mode. And he looked at them in stark fear, they said, in his face and made the statement, I now see the vanity of everything that is not eternal. I now see the vanity of everything that's not eternal. We must look at the things now as we all shall look at them in that solemn hour. In other words, in that hour when we come down to the end, my wife and I, like some of you, have had to face some of these tragic deaths. We hate to see it over this coronavirus. You know, brother that slipped out of this world. I had a sister slipped out of this world. It's not fun. And the tragedy is we weren't able to be with them like as you know. But I would say to you, in that hour, we will dispel the illusion of the temporal. This that we put such a premium on. This we, we spend so much time and effort in fact, I would just challenge you, don't devote all of your time and talents and thoughts to the temple of passing. I wish I'd get off on a tangent, but I could probably get run out of here. It's amazing how much time we put on foolishness. You know... Maybe I need to. It's amazing to me. I don't know if you ever thought about it, how we're wrestling about how long to keep the bars open, how late they can drink and all this. Like that's a high priority in life. If you lived in a drunkard's home like I did, it's not a very high priority. It's amazing to me what we devote our time and attention, our efforts to. We will one day be confronted with the realities of eternity. So when the Comforter comes, he wants to lead us into all ways of truth. And we can now be comforted with the fact, with all this crumbling around us, God shaking the world one more time, that we can have built our lives on those things that are not shakable and those things that remain. Now, I, uh, I want to make sure that I'm with you. I want to stand on the rock. Jesus is the rock. And I was told my wife not long ago, you know, we, like I said, have curtailed my travels. I'm having a little eyesight problem, and my reflex isn't as good, and we've had a little uh, close calls, and I just we just felt like it's time maybe we just back off. And I said to her, I said, you know, I can't change my life. I still have to study. I still have to do my writing. I still have to prepare sermons. And then I asked myself, what am I going to do with them? All these sermons, I can't preach them. 
And so she becomes the victim. <laughs> but I want to tell you, every time I do, it speaks to the inner recesses of the man. I want to be faithful to the end, don't you? That's an awful weak amen. I want to think on eternal things more than these passing things. You love him, don't you? You put up with me pretty well. Would you stand? Father, we only did as you laid on our heart. We mentioned as you did to us, it would be a message more than a sermon. We are needy people. We live in a world that's going through Rapid changes. We're seeing what we never thought we'd witness. We don't know what the end is. We certainly can't look to Washington, D.C. or any place else. We must look to you, the author, the finisher of our faith. You, who are, is the first cause and fixed center, and you will be the final conclusion. Speak, and we will hear you. And we will obey, for faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And so as of old, those who saw the promise afar off, and we see it, were persuaded of them, embraced them, and confessed them. This we do today, in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Pastor, do you have any closing words? You're dismissed. Thank you.